0: to Between the Worlds. I'm your host, Amanda Yates Garcia. This season, we focus on the Suit of Pentacles, all about abundance, the earth, eroticism, and the underworld. Stay tuned and learn how to re enchant your world with tarot, magic, and more. Greetings, witches, and welcome to Between the Worlds. I'm Amanda Yates Garcia. And I do not want to dawdle here in the intro because we have such a great episode here for you today, and my whole body is itching to just jump into it right now. So today we're talking to fellow witch Nick Dickinson, whom I love, all about Circe, the goddess of witchcraft, the lady of the beasts, and the mistress of wands. You might remember Circe from The Odyssey by Homer or Madeline Miller's excellent book, Circe, which focuses on the story of the goddess herself. Some might call her a demigoddess, but I love her so much I'm going to go with goddess forever. In the episode, we discuss the evil eye, curses, how to break them, plants, secrets, invisibility, revelation, concealment. You're going to Love this episode, and you're gonna love Nick. I highly recommend you follow him on Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. And if you're in the Salem area, Salem, Massachusetts, that is, go into the Cauldron Black and see him in person, or you can take an online class with him. I've done it, I loved it. I wanna do it again. Nick is ordained and initiated in a variety of tantric yoga traditions which is Mahayana Buddhism, and is a teacher of yoga teachers and psychics. And his classes and workshops are influenced by the intersection of classical yoga theory and modern witchcraft practice. Nick operates through a multi-dimensional animist lens. I know that you probably love animism if you're not actually an animist, which I am, but I think most of our our listeners are animist-leaning folks. And Nick also focuses on Greek folklore. His content welcomes all traditions at all levels and can be approached in a purely secular way, for those of you witches who aren't ready to use the word divine. Anyway, huzzah for all of that. Now, before we jump into the episode, I do want to tell you that there is a stunning new book by Tashin coming out on witchcraft that I highly recommend, edited by the brilliant Jess Hunley and glorious friend of the podcast, Pam Grossman. You'll probably know through her own podcast, The Witch Wave, and her beautiful book, Waking the Witch. And this Tashin book on witchcraft is gorgeous. In fact, on the cover, you will see Circe, the very subject of this episode, and the very image that we discuss in this episode is on the cover of this book. The book itself is filled with beautiful illustrations and essays on witchcraft from all of your favorite witches, like Gabby Hurstic and Edgar Fabian Frias, both of whom have been on this podcast. And if you love today's episode on Circe, I think you'll dig my essay for the book as well, which is all about witches in mythology. I'm so excited to get my hands on this book, and it's available for pre-order now, and the link is in the show notes. So without further ado, let's go into Circe territory. Whoa. Okay, so Nick, I am so excited to have you on the show. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. We go way back into the day of uh, of binding Trump together and all of that. And um, I've taken your class, which I love and just so highly want to recommend to all of our listeners out there on um, protection and curse-breaking magic. We're going to talk all about that, but before we do, I just want to introduce you and uh, let you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your practice.
1: Well, I deeply appreciate you having me here. As you know, I'm also a big fan of yours. And um, I'll I'll give the short version, which is that I I was born into a family that was practicing witchcraft and folk magic. Uh, My mom was a hippie in the 70s and <laughs> she was practicing yoga she had um, Louise Hebner's power through witchcraft and some other books that were sort of popular um, in the 70s and 80s and so magic and the idea that you could influence circumstances in life through prayer through lighting a candle um, through ritual um, was just always part of my life you know and and it it's it sort of I don't have one of those like, this is how I discovered witchcraft stories because it was just kind of there, you know, it's always there. And um, I eventually really leaned into the sort of um, modern witchcraft side of things, um, and and became a professional tarot card reader in high school, um, and then um, and that kind of stayed with me all through college. I, I was, um, you know, reading cards for people, casting spells for people, um, and I eventually became a Buddhist monk, and I was a Buddhist monk in a Tibetan tradition. Um, for almost 10 years. Um, and the whole time, you know, if you don't know much about Tibetan Buddhism, it's deeply magical. So it felt like a natural sort of continuation of my of my witchcraft education. Uh, and then I, I wanted to move more into the sort of secular world. And I became sort of a, a mainstream yoga teacher, a yoga teacher for a, a big sort of corporate brand. Um, but the whole time I was like reading people's cards and, and doing Samathiasi service, which is the removal of the evil eye and stuff like that. Um, and eventually, I, I started teaching in Salem, Massachusetts, at, at one of the um, big witchcraft shops there called the Cauldron Black. And that sort of brings me to today—that I've I, I become a professional witch again. I've sort of stepped back into that role after, after having really not really been working in shops in a really long time, at least. And um, I, I, I lead education programs there, um, as you know. Cersei Academy is through Cauldron Black, and. And I think this sort of expression for me feels the most comfortable. You know, I think if you really want to know uh, uh, who and what I am, I think I I felt the most comfortable as a young sort of uh, femme queer growing up on the border of New Hampshire (laughs) and Massachusetts, I felt the most comfortable in the witchcraft shops in Salem. Like when I walked into Laurie Cabot's shop probably in the early 80s for the first time with my mom, it was like seeing a version of myself you know she was in her like full regalia and you know she was still working to register back then so she was very accessible and I was like this is this is who I am you know there's a there was a sort of sacred connection there and I think that part of me has always felt the truest and sort of has been that sort of underlying um, motivation of my life
0: I love it so much yeah I we share that uh feeling of deep knowing and connection with witchcraft uh through our childhood i know that you also like um because your your class the one that i took was based on greek folk magic and that's something you learned through your grandmother is that correct
1: that's right i mean my grandmother is an orthodox christian she does not consider herself a witch by any means in fact she was accused of witchcraft by um a family member an aunt of mine and it was a a very hard time for the entire family she sort of now has a sort of a um sort of a, a casual sort of appreciation, maybe even a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, an admiration of what I've become, you know, as a professional witch. But in the early days, when my interest moved towards witchcraft, she didn't like it. She resisted that. Um, but she actually helped to form that interest because, as you know, she gave me the transmission of an oral um, prayer lineage to remove the evil eye, which is not a sanctioned, practice by the Orthodox Christian church in Greece, but it's one of those things that they just sort of, they accept that it's like a folk practice. It's sort of a continuation of of something that, you know, we know in the Mediterranean region, at least, um, is very ancient. So the process of Xematisma and also the process of even being given the prayer was very ritualized. You know, she had to give it to me on a specific day and under specific circumstances, and there was a lot of preparation for it. So I consider that one of my witchcraft initiations, actually, especially with regard to um, to power in the body, you know, because the the process, as you know, because you've been studying it with me, is about the body more than anything else, which I find fascinating. So she was definitely a huge influence. And um, her mother... Um, is a sort of very mysterious figure in the family. Um, she had a lot of superstitions. Um, she had a lot of, you know, you know, it's bad luck to cut your fingernails on a Friday if the moon is waning or something like that. Like a lot of mm-hmm. stuff like that that we don't really have a good explanation for. So I I, I naturally sort of moved from the sort of Christian lens of of my grandmother's um, instructions into sort of a more modern witchcraft approach so even even a folkloric witchcraft approach I think it's it's okay to say
0: well so much witchcraft I mean now from a contemporary point of view we like to think of it as purely pagan or animus but you know most of our ancestors probably were Christian even if they were practicing forms of folk magic and so they're so syncretized now um after you know thousands of years of Christian influence or Catholic influence or Orthodox influence, like that's just a part of the practice now. Whether or not we like that,
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> but um, but so you so could you tell us a little bit more about what ze, ze t- pronounce it again for us?
1: Kse. Yeah. Tell so us more <laughs> about. That. So the kse part means like to get rid of, to undo, to banish. And Matyasma just means mati is I in Greek. And so if you have the evil eye and you live in a Greek culture, you just say to somebody, oh, I have the mati, which literally just translates as I have the eye. But everyone knows you mean the evil eye. So the word evil eye is actually a little redundant because in the Greek language, we don't, we don't say evil eye, we just say mati or eye. And that actually is a similar, um, there's a similar thing in, in certain Hindu, Hindu communities, tantric yoga communities especially. They'll just say, I have drishti. And if you've taken a yoga class, you maybe know that drishti just means gaze or attention. But what they really mean when they say I have drishti is I have a bad attention on me. I have a bad eye on me. So the samatisma process is removing the evil eye. It is the process by which we sort of redirect that energy or turn it right back to where it came from.
0: So evil eye comes to us from someone else looking at us with jealousy or... Um, criticality or what? Tell us more about how one gets the evil eye.
1: That's one of the theories. Yes. <laughs> so you'll find different approaches to it. And like I said, it's it's widespread in the Mediterranean. We're talking about Islamic culture, Christian culture, Judaic culture, um, of course, Hindu culture. Um, so it, it's a sort of a little bit different, maybe culture to culture, but in general, yes. Um, it, and, and, and I should say that it's it's sometimes involuntary or unintentional.
0: Right. That the person who puts it on you isn't necessarily thinking, oh, I'm going to cause that person grief, but that they they just maybe have a natural power. They have such a strong feeling that it just is transmitted. Is that correct?
1: That's right. And there's also, you know, when we look at the folklore, there's also like a there's also like a, a sort of consideration that the person might be a conduit for something else. Like a bad spirit is like seeing through their eyes, which you, you find in, in this sort of a lot of Mediterranean culture that like human beings can sort of be, what's the word I'm looking for, like a conduit for, for a malevolence. Like, it, like you being in a bad mood, let's say, for example, this is a very sort of Greek way to we'll approach it, might attract the sort of uh, a malevolent spirit. And that malevolent spirit could give people the evil eye through you
0: Right. So it's kind of hanging around you and yeah. then through your, and then it uses your gaze to focus itself or transmit itself into someone Correct. else. Yeah. Also, interestingly, isn't it also true that the spirit doesn't necessarily have to be evil? Because if we think of like Greco-Roman mythologies, it's not necessarily always that great to have any God thinking about you or directing their attention to you, right? Like yeah. when the God's you know, focus their attention on Ulysses or Odysseus or whoever, like often bad things happen for him, whether or not they like him.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think that's still a part of Greek culture. You know, um, my grandmother is still alive. Um, she lives with my mom and my sister and my sister has um, a toddler. And if my grandmother gives too many compliments to the toddler, oh, he's so beautiful. Look at him. He's, you know, she'll do Ixematiasi. She'll do like a quick, oh, no, I'm going to give him the evil eye because there's, a, there's still a, a belief in modern Greek culture that if you, if you give too much praise to yourself or especially to your own family, because your family is like an extension of yourself, that you will invite the wrath of something or someone. Of course, we know this from ancient culture, right? How many poor um, Greek virgins were, you know, their, their mom said they were too beautiful or more beautiful than Aphrodite. And then the wrath of the gods came down upon them. It's still, it's still a, a thought that the evil eye can be transmitted through praise. And in particular, it can be transmitted through false praise. So if you, um, you'll find that in, as, in, at least in Greek culture, but it could be, it could be true of a lot of Mediterranean cultures that if, if a stranger gives you too many compliments, it's almost an insult it's like the compliments, especially if they're over the top, can seem like daggers. They can seem like they're inviting the evil eye.
0: Like they want something from you or?
1: Or, or more that they're trying to actually give you the evil eye. Because, oh, they're,
0: they're, they're yeah. deliberately showering <laughs> you with compliments to turn the attention of the gods on you. Like, oh, what do you think so special about yourself?
1: Exactly. And, and I, I think it was Matthew Venus who said to me, it's like giving somebody a poison apple. Like if they mm. if they take the praise and it feeds their ego, it's even easier for the evil eye to come through. And and we see that in Greek culture, it's like, don't let the Trojan horse in. It looks like a gift, but it's it's gonna be your undoing. The praise can function that way. It can, you know, especially if it's like not true. You know, if it's if we actually are experiencing envy, but we say to somebody, you know, we praise them for the thing that we're envious of. We are in a state of disharmony. Our words are not lining up with our actual experience. And that state of disharmony is a very big condiment for the evil eye or the asthma.
0: So if you, for instance, praise someone for something that you are jealous of them about, uh-huh. that, the, that, that internal conflict within you of like, I'm telling them that this is so great, but really I resent that they have this. And that that is that resentment that makes you a conduit for these evil spirits.
1: Yes. Yes. And you'll find that, and this is, we can go down a big rabbit hole here, but I think the mechanics of it are similar across multiple cultures, that the, there's something wrong with the drishti. So
0: there's something wrong with the way that you're seeing, or there's something wrong with the gaze.
1: The way that you're seeing, it all comes back to the eyes or the focus of, of the awareness. And I think it's because, you know, the incongruity of it, that we're holding in our heart maybe bad thoughts about somebody, but we're speaking lies. And that incongruity, that willingness to be deceptive or malevolent to some degree, is a conduit for the miasma.
0: Well, that's so interesting. You know, what it makes me think of is um, Laura Mulvey, the film critic's ideas about the male gaze in cinema and how. Like in cinema, often we're looking at women in particular through men's eyes. And her theory is that then it makes women see themselves differently because they're looking at themselves from an outside point of view and constantly then evaluating whether or not they measure up to what, for instance, um, the, the male gaze wants of them. And it just makes me think of how powerful the gaze is in general, like how powerful points of view are in the way that they affect us and make us think about ourselves.
1: Yeah, that lines up. Uh, you know, I think that we, in general, at least uh, this has been my experience, I think that we underestimate how powerful the human, human attention is, you know, what we give our attention to. So like I said, you, know, you could be looking at somebody and complimenting what they're wearing, but if your attention is on how you think that um, they don't deserve what they've achieved and, and you think they're a bad person, that's where your attention actually is, right? So the drishti right. is like the you might be your eyes might be physically connected to somebody, but what you're really thinking about is how they don't deserve it or how they're unworthy of something. And and so the, the drishti becomes mixed. It's instead of good, it's tainted, it's poisoned.
0: But so this practice, this Greek folk practice is protection magic. So it, it yeah. does two things, right? It's it's lifting the curse. It's lifting the evil eye. And then is it also protecting you from future like dagger eye daggers?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're usually folded in. And um, most prayers I've come across and, and the one that my grandmother taught me, it sort of has multiple steps. That's why I often refer to it as a sadhana, just because I see things a, a lot through those initiatory lenses. But Can
0: you tell us what sadhana is for those of us?
1: Well, the translation my guru used the most was a method of attainment, a method of accomplishing something. But what a sadhana actually is, and there are hundreds, if not thousands of sadhanas, especially in the Buddhist world, is it's a sequence. It's a sequence of actions. So the, the a sequence of actions that can include um, generating mental states, saying words, ringing a bell, lighting a candle, making an offering, like it's a sequence. And so the ksematism prayer that my grandmother taught me is also a sequence. She's like, okay, you do this first, and then you do this, and then you say this, and then you touch them here, and then you think about this. So it's a sequence of ritualized actions is the best way to say that. And included in that is the reversal of the evil eye, um, potentially, depending on on what your emphasis is, also the return, like a return to sender kind of thing, like send this energy back where it belongs, and then a sealing of the body, an anointing of the body, which you find across um, Greek culture, which is sort of almost like a a, a baptism of sorts, which is a I consider it to be like a warding. It prevents the evil eye from coming back in.
0: Right, and we had multiple reasons for wanting to get you on the show this season. And one of them is because we're do- this season we're do- covering pentacles. Mm. And pentacles, of course, are used within witchcraft as protection, right? Like there's the lesser vanishing ritual of the pentagram, which is usually what a lot of ceremonial magic starts off with in order to protect, and protect us from whatever negative entities might be there and to clear the space. And then also usually at the beginning of any ritual of witchcraft will cast a circle which is another way of saying pentacle or pentagram and uh create this circle of protection around us and so that's a part of this whole sadhana as you're saying Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. um this practice is is usually start off by doing some kind of a separation or protection magic that comes up from the earth, if I'm co- recalling correctly, from your class, right? That you oh, yeah. create, in your case, an eight-pointed eight star, is that right?
1: Yeah, and no, I, I I work with a five-pointed star sometimes, sometimes with an eight-pointed star or um, even with an eight-pointed wheel. But in a, a guided ritual where I'm doing semi as like say for an in-person client who's come to the shop for the first time, I will actually do a pentagram meditation with them. And the pentagram will be a, a representation and usually, you know, a guided visualization um, that I lead the client in to get the evil eye out of each of the five elements. So starting with space, space or spirit element and then air and fire and water and earth. So the pentagram represents that, you know, the five parts of the human experience. So we're cleansing the totality of a human being and i think that lines up with earth element you know because it's dealing with the physical reality of human mm. existence the body mm-hmm. like i said it's about the body
0: yeah and then of course the pentacles being that five pointed star which deals with all the the interface of spirit and emotion and intellect and material world and you know consciousness all of those coming together into that one place but so a lot of what you're doing here is this essentially curse-breaking magic, right? Evil Mm -hmm. eyes, a a form of curse. And I think of curses as um, repetitive events or patterns of behavior or events that happen not to your favor. Mm -hmm. And the... Second reason that we really wanted to get you on the show today was because of Circe. You're like an expert in the goddess Circe and you work with her a lot. And Circe, you've told me, is a curse breaker. But before we go into that, I'd love to hear you just tell us a little bit about like who Circe is and how you came to find her and start working with her. And (laughs) and then we can go from there and dive
1: deeper. (laughs) Well, I think the first time I actually saw an image of Circe and maybe even the first time I really made a connection to her. Um, was I was probably like 11 or 12 years old. There was this book series that you could buy on television if you, you know, <laughs> called an 800 number called Wiz- Wizards and Witches or uh, something. Was, that was the book that it was, but I think that it was like The Mysteries of the World or something like that. But it was a book on witchcraft, essentially, a uh, book on, you know, folk- folklore from different cultures, stories of famous witches. And there was an image, um, the Waterhouse image of Circe invidiosa which is a the one where she's holding the very greenish liquid and she's pulling oh, it yeah. out on so yeah. that's my my favorite one maybe and I remember just seeing the image um as as a young sort of femme um queer person and she's if you really look at her eyes in that image she is pissed <laughs> you know she is angry you know she's vengeful you know and the 80s for, if you don't know this, the 80s for, for femme queers was really hellish, you know, and especially in, you know, a football farm town on the border of New Hampshire, it was it was living hell. And I was angry a lot of the time, you know, I was angry at the injustices that I was facing pretty much on a daily basis. And seeing her righteous rage, you know, it, she's it, it's an act of, you know, a vengeance, and it, you, we can sort of debate the morality of it, she's turning one of her nymph cousins, into a monster because she's jealous of her. Um, But there was something about seeing her just standing there on the water, first of all, like Christ, right? She's in the image, she's like literally walking on water and then pouring this emerald green liquid out that I don't want to say it haunted me, but it moved me. I became obsessed even with just the image itself. Um, So much so that I started even... um, drawing, um, I was big into the X-Men comics as well. This was, you know, my 11, 12-year-old year self. So I started, like, drawing images of Circe as if she, could, like, lived in our world, as like an almost like as a sort of Neil Gaiman sort of character. And, um, and that's sort of where it started. And then when I started getting more into witchcraft, she sort of got folded in with all those spirits, you know, all those witch goddesses. And even to some degree folded into a part of my personality like I remember even like getting a glass bowl maybe even taking it from the kitchen or something like that and food coloring and like recreating the moment of like pouring out this water um just just for the I don't know sort of role play of it so that that's sort of where it started at least and of course it it evolved over time and she naturally got folded into a bunch of different curse-breaking deities for me
0: just for folks who maybe don't know anything about her or who she is, can you give us a little bit of background on, on like, for instance, what pantheon she's in? How do we know who she
1: is? (laughs) Well, I think the most fascinating thing about Circe is she is the first deity, male or female, to be associated with witchcraft in the Greek language. So the very first mention of any kind of witchcraft would be from Homer in the Odyssey. And to me, that's one of the most fascinating things about her. She is the daughter of the sun. She is a, a she is a nymph. She's the daughter of Helios. She is sometimes considered the, the niece of Hecate. She is the sister of Pasiphae. So she's is, she is in this realm of what I consider to be, and this is through both um, research and a little bit of personal gnosis, a pre-Hellenic pantheon that seems like it was worshipped in the Mediterranean, including uh, mainland Greece. And... I don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole with this, but I think she is maybe the embodiment of witchcraft in that sense. So in a similar way that like, you know, if we if we sort of take an animus lens to the Greek pantheon, we can see, okay, Helios is the sun. He's the literal sun in the sky, but also all the esoterics. What does it mean to be a daughter of the sun and associated with witchcraft? And And of course, her name also means hawk which is a bird that circles and she's associated with the circle and the rings like rings that you put on your finger as well. Now
0: does her name not mean circle to some degree as well? It
1: does. Yeah. I mean, the, the word circle we use today is coming from Circe Kirki. So when we say circle, we're saying Circe's name indirectly. Wow. Yeah. And so the, it's a, a very huge rabbit hole because if you think, well, how, how potent and impactful circles have been, in modern magic, and by modern magic, I mean the past couple thousand years even. Circles, you know, circles and seals and, and pentagrams. And like, there's so much, right? There's such a rich amount of content there. And one of the, uh, the other things that sort of stands out for me with Circe is she's the first goddess in that pantheon that, to also work with magical plants. She's a poisoner. Her magical act, that first one that's being referenced, is she gives uh, a mixture of what sounds like wine and cheese and some plant materials, some other plant materials, to Odysseus's men. She raises up a wand and sings something, and they all turn into pigs.
0: Deservedly so, right? Like, just for a little background like for folks who maybe <laughs> don't remember the Odyssey all that well. So... Odysseus the hero (laughs) quote-unquote and his men his sailors land on her island she lives on this island of Aiea and um they have some bad nefarious plans they're gonna eat her food they're gonna have their way with her they're gonna um plunder and pillage and then they're gonna be on their merry way they think but she's she says I don't think so not so fast guys here yeah sure I'll feed you come on in and she uses her magic to turn them into pigs and she waylays Odysseus and all of that. So you could read the book by Madeline Miller. Mm-hmm. It's called Circe. It's, it's a really great. Or you could read the Odyssey if you want to, if you want to find out more about her. But um, so, yeah, so she's using a wand. She's using magical plants and incantations. She's the niece of Hecate. Um, so she's, she's a magic witchy woman. So can, let's talk. Oh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Okay, so well, I want to talk about the wands. I want to talk about the plants. I want to talk about her relation to Hecate. And I, I want to talk about incantations and also her island of Aiea. Oh my gosh, there's so much to say. Where should we start? Should we start with wands?
1: Yeah, I mean, she is the wand wielder. She's the original wand wielder. So anywhere we see a wand, a, you know, a staff being used ritually, a piece of wood being re- used ritually, we can, especially in modern, you know, um, Western culture, for lack of a better term, we can trace that back to Circe. You know, there would be no Harry Potter wands if it wasn't for Circe. The idea that someone could wave a wand and transform things, um, especially human beings, into something else, is Circe. And to me, that's fascinating. I, I think she's such an Obvious embodiment of witchcraft, but it doesn't seem like she gets that attention or that she gets that recognition from the modern witchcraft community.
0: Yes, and we're changing all that right now. <laughs>
1: so,
0: but so, but also then the connection between wands and herbs or plant magic, because of course, wands generally historically are often made of plants. And then she has her her rituals with the plants, like she speaks to them, she conjures with them she she calls them forests, she names them, and then, just to be clear, for those of you out there who might not know this, the idea of the poisoner doesn't necessarily just mean someone who is creating evil and killing with their poison methods or their poison plants. A poisoner is also a healer, isn't it in um in classical world?
1: Yeah, I mean the word the word pharmacy refers to Circe, you know, she's kirkii pharmakia, pharma-ka, pharmakos, pharmakas, and the word pharmacy implies both medicine and poison, Right. you know, and it's worth pointing out with Odysseus's men, and I, I, and I, I get that, you know, it looks like she's maybe taking revenge on them, or, you know, um, incapacitating them in some way, but it's worth pointing out that when she turns them back, they're better than they were before. Homer mm-hmm. says this they're younger, their scars are gone. they've been healed. And there's one of the things we're unpacking um, in Circe Academy is that the pig um, although you know it, it, maybe modern culture looks at the pig as kind of a, a disgusting animal or an animal that's you know associated with uncleanliness or something like that. the pig to the ancient Greece, especially in, in, in Homer's time was a sacred animal. It was an animal that was associated with Demeter and Persephone, and it was a purifying animal. So one way to actually look at what she was doing is she saw these men, you know, Odysseus' men at that point were really beaten down. They had, they, had, they had been through a lot of suffering. And turning them into pigs might, might have been a way for her to actually purify them of their actions and to purify the, you know, their, their sins or something like that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they're restored, And if you think about it through that lens, the only one that doesn't get that grace is Odysseus, because he doesn't trust her initially, and he takes Hermes' advice to use uh, molly against her.
0: Mm, which is like a it's kind of a bane or like it protects it protects him it protects, from, him
1: it protects him from
0: her magic
1: her magic yeah and between Neil Gaiman using it in in that movie I think it was stardust and and now some modern research we think that snowdrop is actually moly, the plant mm. snowdrop uh, because it does have medicinal effects that counteract nightshade poisoning ah. and she would have she definitely would have had access to nightshade Poison nightshades and stuff like that. I actually think just personally, um, and it just seems to make sense through sort of an animist lens when, when we think about Cersei, that she is the embodiment of medicinal plants.
0: And you use that with her island of Aiea, right? So when you're invoking Circe, you invoke her and then you invoke her island. Can you tell yeah. us why you do
1: that? Because the land itself is imbued with magic. You know, she finds these medicinal plants on her island. And in some of the stories, the medicinal plants are the have arisen from the blood of slain titans. So another way to look at that is she is accessing the blood of the Titans, her own ancestral blessings, to do magic with.
0: And of course the Titans are kind of the primal earth forces that come about that that existed before the more kind of humanized Greco-Roman pantheon. But they they sort of represent these uh, earth force deities. The-
1: yeah, I usually refer to them as sort of primordial energies. You know, mm. when, we, when we think about Helios, he's primordial energy. He's just the sun. And so when we think, well, what is the daughter of the sun? You know, here it's it's, it's almost summertime here and my garden is full of medicinal flowers.
0: And also the the sun, like it's the, the harnessing of the sun's power is what pl- makes plants have their properties.
1: Yeah, I think we can take a very literal look at her as being the embodiment of medicinal magic because of the word pharamachia associated with her, firstly, but also because all plant life is a daughter of the sun, ultimately.
0: Yeah. And then also, I love how you use the invocation of the island itself, because that's building into the invocation or the incantation that all of our magic comes from the earth. And that shes it's her relationship to the earth that gives her her magic.
1: Exactly, yeah. And that incantation that I use for Aiea, it is meant to acknowledge the land. I, I think I mentioned this to you before, that my intention with the, the Circe Sadhana that I've crafted, and I've crafted a, a few of them now, is not necessarily um, to summon her the way... Um, like a 17th century magician may have summoned a spirit where they would call the spirit to come into a circle and like trap the spirit there. That seems to me to be sort of um, non-consensual spirit work. Not something that that I'm like to do really. Not good. Especially with a force like Circe. So my intention with chanting the, and this was just through experimentation, with chanting the, the name of the island was to change the vibrational state of the petitioner so instead of drawing Circe into your room and trapping her in a magic circle, we're actually trying to go there. We're trying to adjust our energy to 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 see the island that's always there. And I have this sort of, you know, personal theory about Circe that her island is less literal. You know, it's it might not be an island we can find in the Mediterranean, but you know, there are many instances of goddesses that exist you know, on these islands that are outside of sort of human perception. And I, I tend to think of it as almost like a, a fairy realm, you know, a realm that's outside of just slightly outside of our perception, but that in theory, for whatever reason, some human beings can get there. That makes sense. Mm,
0: yes. I love the idea of we're, we're meeting her where she is and we're invoking both the goddess and and the place where she is, that um, it's almost like the field of her energy and we're entering into that. I kind of think of it as, is it called Themyscira, which is the the island that Wonder Woman yeah, comes from true. or the, the, the island of the Amazons?
1: I love that. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, I love to think of them together because also Wonder Woman, I believe, is queer AF. And you say that Circe is also queer. Circe
1: is definitely queer. For for whatever reason, Homer made her very intentionally queer right from the beginning. Um, In fact, the first moment we see Circe, she is singing and weaving. And those are two big cultural flags. Like people of the time who would have read Homer would have been like, that's queer, that's that, really? yes.
0: But didn't they all do No, that? they did they not. Didn't they all sing they and weave? They did not all
1: sing and weave. In fact, singing at, at the time of Homer was considered a, a man's task. It, it would oh. it would have been considered unladylike to sing, it would have been considered very masculine to sing. And weaving was very female, a very a woman's, woman's work was to weave. So her doing both at the same time automatically makes her this very non-binary figure. And Homer would have been definitely intentional about that. Everyone in the culture would have got it. It would have been li- like literally the equivalent of someone wearing a, a rainbow flag pin. You know, it was, it, it, it's right. it's that <laughs> obvious to the culture. And one of the other reasons it's, it's very obvious is that when Circe is depicted in ancient pottery, she's naked and we don't see a lot of naked women and we don't see a lot of naked goddesses. When you see goddesses, they're often fully covered. You know, and it's very rare to see anything other than naked men on pottery. So that was another way that she was like in this non-heteronormative role. Let's just let's just say. And one of the things that um, Odysseus says to her that I find fascinating is he doesn't want her to to like make him unmanly when they go to her bed. Like there's this risk that like, he feels that he'll be feminized by her, which is another clear like to the people uh, you know reading homer hearing homer at the time they would have known exactly what that meant that she was a a, what's she gonna do with that exactly
0: (laughs) (laughs) um wait so and then also she she so that's so great that she that he is worried that she is going to sort of emasculate him somehow through her own um, young powers, her own masculine energies, and then also, I think you'd mentioned to me before that she saves other goddesses, or that she she kind of comes out to represent for other other ladies.
1: I think this is one of my favorite things to reflect on, and I'm I'm, I'm probably going to we're going to discuss this in the next session of Circe Academy. Actually, if you ever have you ever heard Ovid's description of a Medea you ever read? Yes. Oh, I, okay, so, so there's good. another
0: book coming out on witchcraft by Tashin, and I wrote an essay for it, and I use that. Oh, it opens with that quote because I, I love, love it,
1: it so too. much. too. I love it so much, too. So we know that Medea can do crazy stuff. She's so powerful. She's almost goddess-level powerful, right? She's not ordinary witch-powerful. But when she gets in trouble, when her and Jason really fuck things up, they go to Circe for help. And that, in my opinion, that elevates Circe, really puts her on equal standing with Hecate in my mind. So when when Demeter loses Persephone to Hades, Hecate steps in to help her. And And we see Hecate as a savior, as goddess, as a result of that action. And I think that's a valid approach to Hecate. But Circe is just as much of a savior as for Medea. When Medea comes to, to Circe, she does a curse breaking on her. In fact, she slaughters a pig to purify them with their blood, which again, the pig imagery comes back. So that idea that Medea would need someone's help is fascinating, and that the person that she goes to in that world is Circe, that Circe will know how to fix this. You know, it puts her, in my opinion, in the, the same vein as any savior, as goddess, as, you know, Tara from Buddhism or... You know, definitely Hecate and and even maybe Inanna, somebody who can lift miasma.
0: And so, miasma. Just to remind and clarify, is like a well, technically, literally, miasma means like a a foul odor or like a fog. We can imagine as kind of like imagining lots of cigarette smoke or um, you know horrible smells that are like clinging to the air around you. So, to lift the miasma. It means to lift this foulness from you, but but the miasma also has kind of a emotional or psychological or spiritual connotation as well, which implies of a dirtying of the spirit as well. So 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 Cir- Circe is able to lift this miasma, and in fact, even in your course on lifting the evil eye and and. Uh, it, I can't, I'm sorry, the, the way that you say it. Z- z- Xe. Z- Xe.
1: I know, it's a it's one of those just Greek s- syllables, but...
0: Z- I can't do it. I have to practice that a lot. But you actually, li- it's the process is one of literally lifting, using your power, call invoking Circe, invoking her island, and then through that connection to her, having the power almost like Superman can lift a car off a stranded child or something right like you lift the miasma
1: that's correct yeah yeah and i do think miasma has a spiritual component especially in the context of medea it definitely would have had a a spiritual context and i think there's crossover between the evil eye and miasma like there are times when the evil eye is miasma and there's times where miasma may be different from the actual evil eye but there's definitely a you know a, a long standing narrative in the mediterranean region that you can kind of be infected with bad energy and that is it like bad luck? It, it is like bad luck and I think the the concern that maybe Medea had was they had done something so evil
0: right because she kills her children
1: yeah and, and that would incur the wrath of deities of justice even for example if they didn't do something to purify it and that idea of purifying negative karma is, you know, a huge part of Mahayana Tantric Buddhism. You know, it's one of the main practices is purification. You know, and there's all types of rituals, and and some of them feel very Kirkian. You know, they feel like, like there's a lot of like plants and and fires and oils and 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 substances involved in the process of purification.
0: Well, so okay. So many things that I want to touch on too. Okay. Well, so I also want to talk about this idea of Circe as, um, you were saying that she relates to secrets or hidden things or camouflage somehow.
1: Well, you know, like I said, one of the things that stands out to me is that she doesn't have a bigger, more public face in modern witchcraft narrative. And for a while, I just found that puzzling. I was kind of doing my own thing with her for many years. And I was watching sort of the rise of, um, Hecate over the past decade. And, and I was actually sort of expecting Circe to follow in that. You know, it hasn't really happened. There aren't there aren't a lot of books on Circe unless they're academic books, really. Um, I don't know that there are any courses on Circe other than the one I'm teaching that, you know, practical witchcraft through Circe. And it occurred to me, Around the time that I read the book of Oberon, which is a translation of a 17th century um, magical manuscript found in a Shakespearean library, which I think you know about, right, um,
0: I just got it on your recommendation and I have to say it is a little pricey, but also well worth it. It's very thick. It's like a textbook and it's full of, it's like Renaissance fairy magic. Yeah.
1: I mean, we're talking about, you know, the 1600s in the British Isles where there was this, this blending of Christianity and what looked like a lot of land magic, a lot of spirit magic. Um, And one of the, one of the unusual figures in there is the, the queen of the fairies And the queen of the fairies in the book of Oberon is, one of her characteristics is if you summon her, she gifts you a ring of invisibility. And that sort of stood out to me. And I was like, well, mate, in my opinion, one of the characteristics of Circe is she's hidden. She's operating, but it's like she's invisible. And if we look at witchcraft culture, That seems to be the case when we talk about the the poison path and using herbs for even just for purification, not just for poisoning, but also um, using baneful magic with herbs and stuff like that. It's hugely popular right now when we talk about using a wand or transformational magic or or even just sort of um, the, the witch as somebody who luxuriates, a lady of the beasts, you know, somebody who is just living their lives and sort of enjoying the shit out of it like that's Circe. Circe's doing that. And I think she's influenced the entire narrative without being obvious. It's like she's there, but invisible at the same time. And yeah, I I just think that's one of her powers. And I've actually, through my own experimentation, you know, as a a young, as I said, as a young femme um, gay kid growing up in Massachusetts, I wanted to be invisible sometimes. Uh, I wanted to be invisible walking down the hallways of that high school where people would regularly physically assault me and seriously came through for me. Like I, what I, I managed to become invisible. I managed um, through working with her to not only to disappear from the attentions of the people I wanted to disappear uh, from, but also to get the attentions of the people that I wanted. She's also, she's also a goddess of revelation in that sense. And I think goddesses who are, goddesses of revelation or embodiments of revelation. Um, and Circe clearly is because she's a goddess of necromancy. She teaches Odysseus how to deal with the dead um, are also deities of concealment. It, it's like a two way street. Like what that, that energy that can reveal can also conceal. It's like a double-edged sword. So that I do believe that that's part of her power. Yeah.
0: Well, it goes back to this idea of the gaze though, mm-hmm. right? Like what, we can see and what we can't see or what is going on behind whatever it is that we're seeing. You know, as you're saying, the, um, the evil eye is when something appears to be one way. It seems like someone is complimenting us. But behind that, there's something else going on behind the scenes. And so I love this idea of magic as being something that is about revelation and concealment. Which I'm borrowing a little bit from Michael Tasik, the anthropologist. And I also need to make a statement that um, a correction for myself. So I was saying Renaissance magic, but you're saying Elizabethan magic for Oberon, for, for the book of Oberon. And so it's, it's I'm off by about three centuries. But anyway, let's talk about plants, specific plants. Because you you work with specific plants in relation to Circe, is that not true?
1: I do. In fact, I, I made a list so I wouldn't I wouldn't forget any. Let's have a look here. Let's um, talk about these plants. I love a little little guys. Um, so let's see. What, what do I have here? I mean, first and foremost, um, olive. Mm. And olive, as an archetype for the Mediterranean, is huge. Circe would have definitely you know worked with olive for sure. Um, not only the leaves and the fruit to make oil, um, the leaves are medicinal, right? But the wood itself, if you've never worked with olive wood, it's, a, it's an amazing wood.
0: Is it a hardwood?
1: Oh, yeah. Like I have this mortar and pestle, which you can see. Ooh, very hard. So it's olive oh, it's wood. Like yeah. marble. It's marble. It's my favorite wood. Um, I, I tend to imagine her as having an olive wood wand just because of its hardness. It's a very hard wood. It's almost like a uh, like a stone, like a fossil.
0: But I like what you say about use of wands, and I've, I think I've heard you talk about um, using hardwood wands for things to, to create magic that you want to be indelible, that you, don't, that you want to be lasting. And then considering, you know, the, the type of wood that you use in your wand as uh, corresponding to the kind of magic that
1: you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, like I have, I have what I call an unyielding wand, which is a cocobolo wand, which is an even harder wood. Um, that I use for curse breaking and banishments and stuff like that. And then I have a softer one. This one is um, a hawthorn, which is sort of pliable, very soft.
0: Mm. Um, and is often associated with fairy magic, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the, the medicinal herbs um, that I, I think just naturally would come under her grace or, or her, her archetype. Her aegis. Yeah, her mm-hmm. aegis. Um, uh, bay leaf, obviously, clove, nutmeg molly mandrake uh, i have here wolfsbane and foxglove and i i would include wolfsbane and foxglove but also like any plant that has an obvious animal archetype associated with it because she's the lady of the beast
0: can you tell us more about how she's the lady of the beast i love that
1: well this is also a rabbit hole i don't know why she went to go down.
0: <laughs> let's go down let's follow that rabbit that beast down into the earth
1: let's go down so so you know that you know that image that image that everyone calls lilith that i don't actually think is lilith
0: i'll put it in so that our listeners if you go to my instagram page i'll put put it up it's a it's an image of a of a
1: it's the the bernie plaque that's um b-u-r-n-e-y from babylonia and of course you know that this is the image You've seen that. Yeah, before. so
0: it's like a, a woman, she's standing naked, she's got like wings going two directions, her hands are up. It's she's got claw feet. You you'll recognize that when you see it. It's a super famous um like relief sculpture.
1: Yeah. We don't actually know who that is. You know, people are always saying that it's Lilith or Ishtar, and yeah, it might be. It was actually found in what people you know, people think it's just someone's home. It was like a home altar. Wow. But there are, images, there are images like that throughout the Mediterranean, especially on Crete, um, um, which Crete would have been um, Circe's um, sister's domain. That's where Pasiphae, Pasiphae was queen, another daughter of the sun. And there are often these goddesses ho- either holding animals in their arms or standing on animals or even in a half hu- uh, human female body, half animal body. Like, for example, with the Black, plaque, um, she's got legs that are actually taloned, right? She's like a, a bird of prey. So that first and foremost, you know, makes her, and, and I, in my opinion, a, a, a lady of beasts, you know, an animal archetype deity. And, of course, she's named after a hawk. And one of the things that's fascinating, and you can, you can go down a rabbit hole with this, too, is that most Greek gods and goddesses, even the Olympians, are associated with at least one bird, Mm -hmm. like Zeus has the eagle and Hera has the peacock and Athena has the owl and it just goes on and on and it if you you know you can speculate as I I tend to that that's the sort of original form of the deity
0: oh yeah I mean I wonder if that goes back to Africa because I know that a lot of like African traditions have the ancestors who appear as as birds. So I wonder if that's like migrated somehow to Greece. from.
1: It seems like it. And also, you know, we can look at, for example, the cave paintings at Chavette Cave. Have you ever have you ever seen? Um... So there's a fascinating documentary that I highly recommend if you want to go down the um, Lady of the Beast rabbit hole. Maybe I won't even give away. Which whip.
0: I do. You do. OK, so OK. The... <laughs> I want to spend my life in
1: the hole. <laughs> Me too. Um, so I watch I watch this documentary called Cave of Forgotten Dreams once a year. Like I, oh,
0: yeah, by, by. is it Werner Herzog? Mm-hmm.
1: It is a fantastic documentary about that cave, Chauvet Cave. And I won't even give it away because maybe it's worth having a follow-up discussion on it. There is a very uh, obvious aha moment in there um, towards the end of the film that connects the Lady of the Beasts to Chauvet Cave. And, and those paintings, which were charcoal drawings, I should say, um, some of them are thirty thousand years old. So they, isn't
0: that amazing? It's, it,
1: and it, and there seems to be this current of a lady, a deity, a woman, a mother who is part human and part animal and is also surrounded by a pantheon of animals at the same time.
0: Right, because when we see Circe often representations throughout art history like she's depicted with lions and bears and pigs and swans and all sorts of creatures. Like she is often depicted with animals and I I love how you've said that her magic comes through plants and animals. Like she is this nature goddess. Yep. And it's, I love that she's also the goddess of witchcraft. I love it. And then you also say, you know, as she is the goddess of witchcraft, that she's a great um, deity to work with and build a relationship to, to work with, to harmonize with, to invoke for all your spells.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Because she, she's the witch.
1: She's the witch. She is the transformational force. You know, when we think about, well, what do we want witchcraft to do? I think One of the things we can all agree on across multiple schools and multiple cultures is that witchcraft is meant to change things, right? We want to change the circumstances around us. We want to go from a state of sickness to a state of healing, a state of miasma to a state of harmony. We want to go from a state of poverty to a state of wealth. Like Most witchcraft is geared towards changing things, and she is the deity of transformation.
0: In the same way that plants transmute the sun, Mm -hmm. the sunlight into... Nourishment. Seriously, we love you. We want to sing you an ode. Would you mind singing a little?
1: Not at all. So the chant that I um, that I encourage people to use to try to uh, connect with her is a, just a simple chant of her island's name, which I usually pronounce as um, this. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: I love that so much. It's so beautiful. I feel like I'm just transported to her world where I would love to go live on her island with her. And spend some time making some magical herbs and stroking the lions and playing with our wands as young queer witches yeah. are prone to do. <laughs>
1: exactly. And that's my <laughs> that's my intention. You know, I have I have the CRC Academy folks doing this as a daily practice where they recite that together with some some different um imagery. Um, and then they recite a, a mantra um to Kiriki, which is her name mantra. Eo Titania, so this is this is putting Titania in the name, which we haven't discussed yet, as da- daughter of the sun. So it goes, Eo Titania, Kirki, Pharmakia, and that's just Eo Titania is daughter of the, the sun or da- daughter of Titans. Uh, Kirki is her name, Circle Hawk, and Pharmakia is that word that means witch in ancient Greece, which is inseparable from medicine. Witch, medicine, pharmacy is all the same thing, so that's the first line of it. And then the second line is Io, Titania, Kyrki, Chrysosophia, which is golden light, which represents you know, obviously the sun, the solar energy. And then uh, Io, Titania, Kyrki, Panagia. And Panagia, you might re- remember from um, curse-breaking uh, mentorship, that is the lady of all the divine powers, when a, a word that's still used in, in Greek religion today to represent um, Mary, mother of Christ, um, but also if we translate Panagia as O Lady of All the Divine Powers, that's also the first line of the Exaltation of Inanna written by an Wow,
0: the first poet ever.
1: It ties into that whole Mediterranean uh, witch goddess.
0: Well, so will you sing us that?
1: Sure, yeah, it goes like this. Yo mm-hmm. e Titania, kirki pharmakia, Io e Titania, kirki sophia,
0: I love that. I'm going to sing it every day. Every single day.
1: (laughs) That's that's what we're doing in in Circe Academy. And it feels, it just feels good. There's something about, you know, when I first, I shouldn't say when I first, when I started working with Circe again in a very obvious way, there's something to just feels good about reaching out to her. I feel some. I feel a response. That's what it is. Like I feel energy coming back from her. You know, and I feel that
0: way too. Yeah, I feel like she's very generous.
1: There's something there. There's it, there's just a current, a very strong live current of energy, and and even just thinking about her. Um, and mm-hmm. I think as I've told you before, you know, one of the one of the things that sort of blew my mind about her was I. I presented the exaltation of Titania, which is a little sadhana I've written to Circe um, a couple of years ago at the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival. And this was inside the witch house in Salem, which is a a pilgrimage um, spot for for witches from all over the world come to see this house. And there was, I want to say there was probably close to 100 people that came through. There were three groups that came through. we, We did the exaltation of Titania together, which involved chanting and meditation. Um, and visualization as a a request for Circe to to interact more with us and also to help us lift miasma from the world in general. And this was I believe 2018, 19, I can't remember. And I did a lot of prep for it. Like I did a lot of ritual prep. I made a lot of offerings. uh, And my intention was to get her attention, like as a living goddess, like what would it take to actually get Circe to look at us, to hear us, to touch us, to hold our hands. And when I Prepared the room for the event. I was in there by myself with just an assistant. The trance that came over me was a little bit shocking, to be totally honest. Like uh, it was it was more powerful than I expected. And, and and I've sort of, you know, I've I've dealt with a lot of trance states. You know, I was a Buddhist monk, and I, you know, there's a lot of trance states in in, in tantric Buddhism and stuff like that, but this was like a current of energy that was moving through me. And it, it almost kind of threw me off and there's a recording of it. You can kind of see, I don't, I almost, when I watched the recording, I'm like, who is that person? Like I, I was, it, it wasn't exactly unsettling, but you can see that I'm trying to process that there's an incredible amount of power in the room and maybe more than I expected. And people came up to me and they were weeping. They wanted to know more about Circe. And then that really led to me creating Circe Academy and an actual study program.
0: I'm so glad that you did and that you have I, I was wondering if just as a last question, you could if you have any recommendations for our listeners, I don't know if they want to get closer to Searcy or they or you have books that you feel like they should be practicing. Like what do you feel like um young or, or older, you know, burgeoning witches should know. Like, what's the tip that you want to drop?
1: I think the first thing I would recommend is the book called *Transformations of Circe: um, The History of an Enchantress* by Judith Yarnell, which is this book right here.
0: Ooh, looks so good.
1: Um, I definitely recommend *Circe* by Madeline Miller. If you're interested in more academic books, I can give you a whole list. But
0: If you give it to us, we'll put, a, we'll put the list in our
1: show notes. One that really stands out is Drawing Down the Moon, Magic in the Ancient Greco World by Radcliffe G. Emmons. It's a gorgeous book. And then Circe Invid- Invidiosa is on the cover of this one, Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts in the Greek and Roman World by Daniel Ogden.
0: Ooh, love it.
1: Fantastic. These are academic books, but they're fantastic.
0: Okay. These are great recommendations. Good, I'm glad. Well, so I know that listening to this, our listeners are going to be like, I need to sign up for Circe Academy. I need to study with Nick. And I highly recommend it. He's a great teacher. Many, many years of practice. Um, and so where can they find you? How should, how should they find you to work with you?
1: They can find me um, on social media. I'm Urban Wizard on Instagram. They can also go to the Cauldron Black website. The Cauldron Black is the shop that I work at out of Salem. And the Cauldron Black um, has all of CRC year one curriculum up. Now, if, if people want an introduction to CRC Academy, I recorded a free introduction session. Um, and they if they reach out to me directly, they can even message me on social media. I check my messages relatively um, regularly.
0: Another thing I want to plug is you have a, pat- a Patreon, and in it you do curse breaking or evil eye lifting for your patreon members that's right and that i can can tell you it's (laughs) it works i i highly recommend that you join this it is a a huge bargain for the uh, the amount that you get so
1: that's right my patreon service you can join for as little as a dollar a month i'm happy to have everyone at every level whatever you can pay is 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 fantastic it's great it's enough And I do a daily ksematisma service, and I do a ksematisma in the morning, an evil eye removal, basically when the sun is up, and then an evil eye removal when the sun goes down. And those have a little bit of different emphasis, but I I include everyone, my family, my friends, you know, all all my patrons and that. And then, of course, I have, like, more content on there. Like, I host moon rituals. There's a ton of recordings on there. But that is the sort of the core product is that I, I do evil eye removal for everybody twice a day.
0: Yay, huzzah in all directions.
1: And I should say that's called Hedgecraft Ritual Arts.
0: Hedgecraft Ritual Arts will be in our show notes. Nick, thank you so much for being (laughs) with us. We've had such a great time. You're welcome. Thank you so much.
1: I appreciate being here.
0: (laughs) Oh, I am still rolling in ecstasy over that episode. I love... Circe so much. I could literally talk about her with you all damn day. And Nick, oh my god, oh my goddess. What a dream. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Please do light a candle for Circe. Give her an offering of some herbs. Let her know how much you love her. And we will be back next week to talk about the six of pentacles all about exchange of energy and resources and giving and receiving. And we're talking about it with tarot biz expert, Liz Worth. I cannot wait to see you there. And don't forget to pre-order the Tashin Witchcraft book. It's definitely a treasure you're going to want to keep on your shelves. And I am sending you so much love and magic and deliciousness. Until next week... Thank you for traveling with us between the worlds. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Subscribers to our Weird Circle at the Jupiter level get workshops, community, bonus content, and magical support throughout the year. We really do hope that you join us. In the meantime, if you love our content and want to keep us on the air, please do take a moment to give us five stars or leave us a sweet review on iTunes or share your favorite moments from the podcast on social media. Truly, all of it makes a huge difference to us. You can tag me at Oracle Valet or at Between the Worlds Podcast. Not only does your support help keep us on the air, it helps baby witches who really need this content know how to find their way to us between the worlds so thank you for being here and thank you for helping other people find their way here as well this podcast is hosted by amanda yates garcia and produced by carolyn Pennypecker Riggs. ricks our icon was created by maria Minis, aka tiny parsnip and our graphic design is by leah hayes thanks for flying with us